Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab that and meet me over in 2 Timothy. If you're new around here, we've been going through a sermon series through the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, we took a week off last week to do family worship, which was absolutely awesome. Those kids led us in worship better than, uh, well, I can't say that. They did a great job. Um, I've got to tell you, today, as we look at 2 Timothy 2, which we're going to be in verse 8, this is one, this little section is one of the most impactful sections of scripture in my life. It's one that I go back to repeatedly, and it's one that I've been excited about teaching, and I hope that it becomes just as impactful for you as it has been for me. So we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 8. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell has a podcast called Revisionist History. If you're a nerd like me, you should subscribe to it. It's pretty awesome. One of the podcasts he does that absolutely blew my mind is he talks about why your memory doesn't work at all. He actually uses this example. There's a study called Flashbulb Studies where they take a group of people and they interview them right after a major event. So this one that they interviewed of was right after 9-11. And they asked them what they experienced. And then five years later and ten years later, they asked them the same exact question. What they found was not only did their stories change, they changed dramatically and they don't even remember giving the answers that they gave before. So for instance, Malcolm says, I was walking down the street in Manhattan whenever the towers blew up. That was on day one. Five years later, I was in Boston hanging out with my best friend when the towers blew up. Ten years later, I was sitting in my apartment in Manhattan. And he would swear to you that what he said on those previous occasions never happened and he never said that. Studies continually show that this is how it works. I mean, you've all been asked that question. Where were you on 9-11, if you're old enough to be asked that question? Uh, and many of us have stories. What they find is your memory actually changes over time. The point is, memories aren't all that reliable. Like, I remember the first time I took my kids back to Florida to see my childhood home. Uh, I, I used to tell them we would jump off this this roof into the pool of this three-story house, and I, I couldn't wait to show them this house and how daring I was until we showed up, and it was a small split-level shack that actually wasn't big at all, and it wasn't impressive at all. And then the, the nostalgia that I used to have was deflated whenever I thought the things that were so awesome weren't awesome at all. And many of us, the point is many of us live in the past and we want to live in that area, except what we don't realize is maybe our past memories are flawed. Are you, are you starting to see how sometimes maybe these things matter? Like you daydream about where you used to be. What if where you used to be wasn't as awesome as you thought it was? What if hope isn't found in the past, in the way things used to be, but what if it's found in the present? I think that's what most of us want. I think most of us want something stronger, something more secure than the distant past that our memories fail us in anyway. I think we want a hope that's rooted in the present. So here's the big idea for today. Here's what you're going to see in this passage. It's a long one, so you might want to take a picture of it, come back to it. There's an event in the past that is rooted in history, not our memories, that can give you a hope that you need in the present. So if you are like most of us and you need hope, that's what I hope you see today. Now, we took a week off of 2 Timothy, and I know many of you don't remember what I said anyway, so let me catch you up for a second. This is Paul's farewell letter. It's the last thing he says. It's the last recorded thing we have from Paul before the emperor Nero takes him and he beheads him for his faith. 
I've told you this, Nero is going through a bunch of things historically. He's burning down the city of Rome. He's blaming it on the Christians. And Paul is the figurehead who gets the brunt of his attack. Well, in this farewell letter, while Paul is sitting in prison awaiting his execution under the emperor Nero, his friend Timothy is struggling. He's a church planter in this province of Asia Minor called Ephesus, and the Roman Empire is collapsing around him. He's struggling. He doesn't know what's going to happen. His best friend's about to die. He thinks his faith is next, and history tells us it actually is. Well, he needs hope in the middle of a world falling apart around him, so Paul reminds him of his calling. By the way, if you know who you are and whose you are, you tend to not really care about the circumstances going on around you. You see, the task that you have will not move the needle one inch. But if somebody tells you the truth about who you are and whose you are, it tends to, it tends to change everything about you. Now imagine that somebody is Jesus. See, that's what Paul needed to tell Timothy, is that Jesus is the one who has empowered him. Jesus is the one who indwells him. Jesus is the one who gave him his spirit. It's almost like the God of the universe had come down from heaven to earth, put his arm around Timothy, like right before a football game, and says, buddy, you're going to be all right. There's such power in this. He said, I'm proud of you, son. There's power in knowing whose you are, especially when whose you are is the king of the universe. So here's the deal. Whose you are mattered, but it only mattered if that person was the king of the universe who had control over your situation. And that's what Timothy needed to know. Not only was his circumstances, they weren't okay, but the God of his circumstances were. So Paul reminds him in this text who his God is. Check it out. Look at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Y'all, this is so powerful. Watch what Paul is saying. He's saying the event of the past, Jesus, which was rooted in history, it actually happened. By the way, there's no historian on the planet, Christian or non-Christian, that will argue or debate that Jesus was a real person that actually came into real history and did something significant. Now, they'll debate what he did, but he's a real person in history. And this is going to give Timothy hope in the present. So he says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. You know, of all people, you would think that Timothy wouldn't need to be reminded of who Jesus is, right? The guy spent his entire life serving Jesus. But the reality is, is we all have flawed memories. We all forget really often. Do you know how many times the command to remember is said in the Bible? 240 times. Why? Well, because you have a propensity to forget. So do I. It's one of the most repeated commands in Scripture. When God rescued the people of Israel out of slavery, as, as uh, Kelsey said earlier, and they, 40 years in the wilderness, they cross over into the promised land, and the very first thing he tells them to do is set up these stones of remembrance. Listen, if you don't have markers in your life to remind you of the goodness of God when things get hard, you will forget. That was the common theme over and over and over again. You think that understanding God one time is going to get you through this. No, we cannot rely on our memories and we have to recall the things of God. We need to get like a journal or something to memorialize God's faithfulness because when things get hard, you quickly forget. This is exactly what was happening to Timothy. Timothy, you need to remember who Jesus is. Timothy, you're sitting in the prison of your despair and Paul's not like suck it up buttercup. 
Paul tells them, hey, remember Jesus. When things get hard, go back to what you know. Remember Jesus. Let me break this down for you for just a second because you need to see exactly who Jesus is. You ready for it? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Number one, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. I don't know if you know this or not, but Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. It's not like he was the son of Joseph Christ, right? It's a title. It comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one or Messiah. He's the Christ. Jesus is the one who was promised in the Old Testament. He's the one that the entire Old Testament points to. Let me point this out to you, okay? Because Jesus is often referred to as the great prophet, priest, and king because he fulfilled the entire Old Testament. He was the better Moses who rescued his people out of a spiritual slavery that was brought on by their sins. You see, the Bible has a deeper storyline being told, a story that points to a better reality. In Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, well, we exited the heavens. We became spiritual slaves to a different kingdom that was ran by Satan. And we all longed for a rescuer. We needed a Christ. We needed an anointed one. So when the Exodus story happens, the story's not really about Moses and Pharaoh. If you read deeper into it, it's a signpost to the day when there would be a Christ who would come and rescue us from a different slavery, a spiritual slavery. Then the Old Testament has a bunch of prophets that go on from there, and these prophets point the way to, to what life should be like. They point people to Jesus. Well, Jesus is the better prophet. He lived the perfect life, and he created a rule of life for all of us to live. He came to guide our lives into joy and the fullness of life. And then he's the ultimate king, the better king to a better kingdom. When David and Solomon had failed to live their perfect life and lead to God's kingdom, they pointed to a day when there would be a king, a better king, who would sit on the throne of a better kingdom. You see, God's kingdom is not like our kingdom. Notice this. I've told you this before as we walk through the Old Testament. The Old Testament kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah because they had a civil war. Here's the point. It, it, it's, a, it's a picture of God's kingdom today. It's divided spiritually. You have God's kingdom and man's kingdom. So in the Old Testament, when you had these kings that could not unite God's kingdom, we longed for a better king who could. And that's the promise of Jesus, isn't it? The Jesus who rose from the dead will come to defeat sin and death so that he can unite God's kingdom again. Listen, Jesus isn't just a good man who taught good things. He is the king. He's the Messiah. He is the Christ, the anointed one who came to fulfill the entire Old Testament. And that changes everything. So the next time you hear some crazy stuff like, hey, you don't need the Old Testament because we have Jesus. You can tell people the only reason why we know who Jesus is is because the Old Testament. He fulfilled the whole thing. It's all pointing back to him. Number two, Jesus is risen from the dead. That word risen is in the Greek perfect tense. I feel like every week I'm doing an English lesson for us. <laughs> it's in the Greek perfect tense. Here's what it means. It means he didn't just raise from the dead, but he's continually raising from the dead. You know, Jesus is alive today. That's the point. Jesus is the risen Christ who has authority right now. It wasn't just an event in the past that doesn't have implications for the present. He is continually rose from the dead. Look, if you need hope in the present, you need to look at the historical event of the past and remember this. Jesus rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, you will too. You see, that's the promise. 
Jesus promised that everyone who believes in him will be raised from the dead in a physical body. Guys, this, uh, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but, but for many of us, we've been raised in this Western worldview, what would they call Platonic worldview, Plato. Uh, he, he, he created this worldview that basically says when you die, you're going to go float on the cloud somewhere and play a harp all day. You, you realize that's not the biblical picture of what happens when you die. I don't want to go do that. The biblical picture of what happens when you die is God puts you in a more perfect body on this earth doing the things you're already doing without sin. And you enjoy all of life the way it was always meant to be. There is such a, something awesome in that. And what you're doing right now is you're building that kingdom up gradually. See, the best picture of this is baptism. Baptism is when you literally go underwater to signify that you're dying to yourself and God is raising you to a newness of life. And, and what it does is, is it, it allows you to start living in this newness of life right now. By the way, on Easter, this Easter, we're going to celebrate baptisms outside. Now, I want to invite you, if you've never been baptized as a believer, this isn't just for like the spiritual elite or whatever, you need to get baptized. I'm going to be at that table at the end of this message, and, and you know this, if you've been at City Church at all, I don't really do these response messages a whole lot. God's word, that's the response. But I want you to respond to this. If you know that Jesus is the Christ risen from the dead, and you've never publicly professed that, you need to. And I want to walk you through that. So here's the point. Jesus came and he did the one thing that none of us could do. He lived our perfect life in our place. You see, because, Jesus, because God is just, because God is just, there had to be somebody who would pay the penalty for us breaking God's just law. Think about it. What kind of a God would you serve if he didn't care about justice? Sometimes, y'all, this, this aggravates me. Sometimes I think we live in this fairy tale world where God is just butterflies and rainbows all the time. You realize that the only people that want God to be all loving without justice are people who have never experienced real injustice? Think about it. If you've ever experienced real injustice in your life, don't you want a God who is just? You think God's up in heaven looking down at genocide being like, ah, no problem. No, he cares deeply. And here's the deal. God loves us so much that he took the justice of the world and he put it upon his own shoulders. That's the gospel. That Jesus went to the cross carrying the justice of the world in himself. And you see, at the cross, love meets justice because he didn't just take the punishment of the world upon himself. He loved us so much that he wanted to. And he cared so deeply about his own justice that he had to. He put it all in display at the cross. Guys, that's the gospel. Now, here's the most incredible part. By Jesus raising from the dead, he defeated your greatest enemy, death. See, Timothy needed to be reminded that his greatest fear in life was nailed to the cross. Listen, you need that reminder too. I'm so convinced that the reason why we don't fulfill the power of God is because we're just scared. And Jesus says, I already proved my love for you by dying for you. And I already proved my power over sin and death by raising from the dead. And the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, Paul tells Timothy this in 1 Timothy 1.7, lives inside of you. It's the same power that can help you raise from your spiritual death every single day to a new life. That's where you get your strength from. Number three, Jesus is the offspring of David. Remember earlier I told you that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament? Well, there was one promise made to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David was promised that he would have a son that would sit on the throne forever. And then he was told that that son would build a house that God himself would live in. 
Now check this out. David did have a son, and he thought that that son Solomon was the promise, and yet it wasn't. If you go and read the book of Matthew, Matthew tells you that that son that came through the line of David was actually Jesus. Now here's the crazy thing, is you can actually trace Jesus' life back to Adam through Abraham and then through David. It's almost like God had the entire thing rigged. Here's the crazy part, though. Do you remember who Jesus' great, 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 great grandmother was? Her name was Bathsheba. Do you know how that happened? David had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba and sent her husband, Uriah, off to war and had him killed whenever they found out she was pregnant. You know why that's important to me? Because there's a great lesson in this. Write it down. Next slide. Our king fixes broken things. See, some of you are sitting in this room, and you think that your life is so bad that God can't fix it. I don't know what you've done. I'm going to guess it's not as bad as what David did. And if it was, I don't know if I'm ready to hear about that. <laughs> Look, you need to be reminded that God is still in control of this broken world, and he always takes what Satan means for evil, and he does good with it. Guys, you look out there right now, and it seems like the whole thing is broken. But you know what history tells us? God fixes broken things. Sometimes we're just, we're, we're tunnel vision so much that we don't remember history. Maybe you're sitting here and you're waiting on a miracle. I want you to hear me say this. God fixes broken things. That's who our God is. Our God is the king who sits on a better throne. He's the Messiah, the offspring of David, and he sits on a better throne. And because he fixes the mess of this world, I promise you, one day he will come back and he will fix your ultimate mess too. That's the great hope. That's what Timothy needed to be reminded of, and that's what you need to be reminded of too. Remember the big idea. There's an event in the past that's rooted in history, not our memories, that can give you a hope that you need in the present. Doesn't the gospel give you that hope? Because Jesus is the offspring of David, he proves that he can fix broken things. He can fix your broken heart. He can fix your broken marriage. He can fix your past mistakes. He can restore you back to the way that you were always supposed to be. And because Jesus rose from the dead, he can raise you from the dead too. See, he can give you a new spiritual life that's found in him. Jeremiah 31, he tells us that he will put a new heart inside of you. The book of Ezekiel says he'll make you come alive again. He will raise you up in a physical body one day. See, Jesus, the Christ, is the ultimate reminder of the goodness of God. By the way, I love this, and you can check this. In the book of 2 Timothy, every single time that Jesus is named, he's named as Christ Jesus, except for this very one time. He's named Jesus Christ. And there's a significant reason why Paul switches the order here. And here it is. Here's the reason. Paul switched the order because he wasn't talking about Jesus' name. He was talking about a promise. See, Jesus, his name, Jesus means a God in the flesh. And that promise is that he will fix your flesh too. Christ meaning the fulfillment of the promises, which means that God's past faithfulness is always a reminder of his future faithfulness. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, fulfilling all of his promises for you. If you need hope right now, it is in Jesus Christ. All right, keep reading with me. Verse 9. As preached in my gospel, Paul says, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. 
Paul was a criminal. Matter of fact, that word criminal, it's a unique word that's only used a couple times in the New Testament. It's used with the thief on the cross, too. It, it, it means something like the most egregious type of criminal, the worst kind, only reserved for terrorists, traitors, and murderers. That's how people saw Paul. That's how the world saw Paul. I mean, and that's a pretty tough place to be. It's hard to function a certain way when the entire world and all of society gives you an identity that's not yours. Listen, you may not be a criminal, but you may be wearing a caricature of an identity that really makes you struggle to live out the life that God has for you. Maybe you feel like you've never been good enough in your entire life you've been told that you're not smart enough or you're not pretty enough or you're not athletic enough. So you begin to buy into this reality that's not yours, but it limits you. Guys, I see this all the time. I see women who are so self-conscious about the way that they look because, honestly, they're comparing themselves to an airbrush, highlight reel, fake version of some internet person that's just not real at all. And you're never going to live up to that standard. Or men. Men, I, I see men sacrifice their talents on the altar of people-pleasing, and they're, so, they're more worried about what people will think about them in their career than they are the gifts that God has given them. And any single, anytime that they're, that, that they're critiqued at all or get feedback at all, they're crushed because they can't separate who they are from what they do. Listen, to live in this reality is restricting. This identity is restricting and society begins to put this on you and you begin to believe the labels that you have. Can I just tell you, you're so much more than the label that you wear. Like you're so much more than that. It might be a part of who you are, but it's not your entire identity. See, Paul knew. Paul knew that being treated like the worst kind of criminal did not define him. The gospel defined Paul. And because he knew whose he was, it changed who he was. Yes, Paul was bound in chains. Yes, his circumstances were not good. Yes, all of society treated him like a failure and like a criminal, but Paul was not a failure. God was still going to accomplish everything that he set out to accomplish through Paul. God's work in the world was going to continue. Listen, because the gospel is real, you're not a failure. That's the point. There's a bigger story going on here, and there's a bigger story going on in your life too, but you're not the main character. Like, I hate to break it to you, but you're not. You're a supporting role in the character and the story that God is creating, and that is a beautiful thing. Martin Luther said it best. The body they may kill, God's, abideth, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. There's some hope in that. Are you sitting here? Are you wondering, how does God feel about me? You, you need to understand the same thing Timothy needed to understand. The fuel of the gospel is in the faithfulness of God. Timothy needed to know that God's story was being written and Jesus was going to build his church. And it did not matter. It did not matter who was on the throne in Rome because Jesus was on the throne in heaven. It didn't matter that the world was against Paul or Timothy because they couldn't stop the risen Christ. The same message that Timothy needed 2,000 years ago is the same exact one you need today. It's the same one I need today. Keep going. Don't quit. Don't believe the lie. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 10. Listen to it. Therefore, Paul says, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect 
that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. You see it? He says Jesus Christ the first time. Now he's saying Christ Jesus. He shifts it. That is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, the power of the gospel is not dependent on us. You keep going because the gospel is going to accomplish its work in the world. My friends, that's the, that's the tension of the gospel. Can I, can I just point this out really quickly? Theologically, it seems like Paul is saying that God saves everybody, and that's why I work harder. And, and that might feel like a contradiction, but it's actually a beautiful tension in the scriptures, and here's why. God is the one who saves, so that takes all the pressure off of you. And yet, he uses you to do it, which is the most beautiful tension in the entire Bible. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. I, I realize that I can't save anybody in this room. I've always known that. But that doesn't mean that I phone it in. That doesn't mean that I go upstairs and Google like sermons.com and print something out and, and walk in here and just say whatever's on the sheet of paper. No, I work my tail off. I work hours upon hours every week preparing a message for you. I, I preach the paint off these walls, and I believe hard that God is going to save, and I do that because, well, there's no pressure. At the end of the day, God's pleased with me, and he's going to use my words to change your life. How do I know that? Because every single week, somebody's like, that was a dud, and then the next person was like, that's the best sermon I've ever heard. And then the next guy walks up to me, and they're like, oh, you, when you said that, that changed my life. And I'm like, I never said that. It happens all the time. All the time. Because God uses it. And he's using it to build his kingdom. Do you hear what I'm saying? God's not up in heaven wondering if you're ever going to be good enough. He doesn't have a checklist uh, how many gospel conversations you've had. And you're like, oh, John, he didn't get it done this week. Maybe he'll do it next week. No. He's up there wondering if you're just faithful. So write this down. Success Success is staying faithful to Jesus throughout a lifetime, period. That's it. That's what a successful life looks like. It's walking with Jesus faithfully through every circumstance, no matter what life throws at you. Verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Before I break this down, let me point out two things that might not be so obvious to you, but they're important. The first one, the saying is trustworthy, points to the fact that this is not original to Paul. This would have actually been a common poem that they recited in the first century. Meaning this, the gospel was actually common nomenclature at this time. It's a beautiful thing. Number two, the second thing I want to point out is that word if. That word if is a conditional statement. Here's what he's saying is basically this. We have responsibilities. We have a part to play. All right, let me break this down for you. Here's the first one. I'll highlight it for you. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. This picture is a picture of salvation. See, to be saved, listen, this is so important in the culture of South. It doesn't mean that you go to church. All right, I, I love this, this quote from my, my friend Joby Martin. He says, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sticking your head in an oven makes you a biscuit. Listen, being saved means you've died with Christ. Now, that death there is a spiritual death. It's an active spiritual death. See, when sin entered the world, you didn't just die physically. Your relationship with God died. And the picture here is that when you start to believe the two things that Paul laid out earlier, that Jesus is raised from the dead and that he is the Messiah or the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, will you begin to come alive. 
This is, I want to show you a few places in Scripture where Paul says this. Romans 10. Look at this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Here's the most beautiful part of this. You don't have to wait until you die physically to do this. God actually gives you new life now. Look at it. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, present. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the promise. New life now. Not waiting until you die, until you float off into space one day, and then, and then the mess gets cleaned up. By the way, again, I just, my mind. The Bible actually never says you float off into space. The Bible says Jesus comes back down. Just, I want to get that picture back in your head. God's kingdom comes down. Like, how many of you need this? How many of you need to know that there's joy in life right now in the middle of the mess? I know I do. Every day. That saying is trustworthy. You can take it to the bank, Paul is saying. If you have died to yourself and put your faith in Jesus, you will get new life. Can I just give you three real quick practical ways that you can die to yourself every day? Because I think sometimes these things are just abstract. Here's number one. Start with knowing that God's mercies are new every day. You know what that means? That means yesterday's mistakes don't need to be today's burden. Y'all, you can let it go. Every day God's mercies are new. Which means, number two, you should start your day off every morning by praying that you would live your life for God. There is something powerful by starting off, God, God, I want to die to myself today. I want to live for you. Maybe it means putting other people first that day. Or not giving into the desires and the temptations that are just natural to you. Or maybe it's choosing to serve other people and be kind to people who aren't kind to you. Which, number three, real practically, listen, it means revealing things to God that he already knows about you. Right? You can fake it till you make it to everybody but him. He already knows what's going on inside of you. And walking around with God with these, these platitudes that don't really matter don't get you anywhere. You're not faking it to him. It means surrendering to what he already knows because he already accepts you. It's telling him what's really going on inside of you. I've told you before, God's not afraid of your doubts. He's not afraid of your questions. What if that's how we started to change our life? We walked into every day as a new day. Then we prayed to God, would you reset my day so that I can live for you? And where you're struggling, you just look to God and surrender. God, I need you. This is really hard right now. If we endure, we will also reign with him. In other words, finish the race. There is a reward at the end. Don't you get that? Here, listen, the reward is you're going to reign with God. Don't you get that you are a son or a daughter of a king, and that means that you are a part of his royal family? John Calvin, the theologian, he called this the perseverance of the saints. What this means is there's absolutely nothing that you can take you out of God's hands. John 6, Jesus says that. He says he will never drive you away if you are his. If you endure, if you keep going, if you finish, you're going to reign with Jesus. This is super important. Listen, endurance proves your salvation. It does not save you. It just proves that you continue to walk with Jesus. Here's what that means. Throwing your stick in a fire at a middle school retreat and having a spiritual experience with God doesn't save you. Walking into church and showing up every week and lifting your hands in worship doesn't save you. None of those things save you. 
It's going all in with Jesus that does. All in. Like, God, you get all of me. That's why whenever we do baptisms, we ask two questions. Do you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? And will you go anywhere he asks you to go and do anything he asks you to do? It's Romans 10, 9. It's God, I'm confessing who you are, and I'm giving you my life. That is what saves you. In the cultural South, we believe the lie that, honestly, we can just kind of live these ritualistic things like I, my parents had a faith, so I just assume that that's what I'm supposed to do. Even if you've had a spiritual experience, that's not the marker of your faith. The marker of your faith is just going all in with Jesus. And listen to the warning, if that's you. There's a real warning here. Paul says it next. If we deny him, he'll deny us. Y'all, have you ever denied Jesus? I have. I have. Maybe not overtly, but it happens all the time. Like in those moments when I'm too afraid to speak up. Listen, Paul gets this from a direct quote from Jesus. Look at Matthew 10, 33. Jesus says this. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I don't know about you, but those are some hard words. And if we're going to take this Bible stuff seriously, we can't just take the verses we like seriously. We've got to take them all seriously. This is hard stuff. You know, sometimes I find myself in these situations where I just don't want to tell people what I do for a living. I, my wife and I, Alice and I, got to celebrate our 10-year anniversary in Cabo this year. Um, and we went to this Mexican restaurant, uh, and this guy sits down next to us, and he's like the only American in there, and he wants to start talking, having these conversations. And I, the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, I just want to eat my popcorn. And he, he, he starts talking about American politics and how he's a part of the Proud Boys, and, and he starts being real racist about Mexicans in this place, and all, I kept thinking in my head, please don't ask me what I do for a living. Please don't ask me what I do for a living. Please don't ask me. I don't want to get into this. Please don't ask me before. Hey, what do you do for a living? I sell insurance. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I said, I'm a pastor. There goes, and my wife rolled her eyes because there goes the rest of the night. Listen, that might not be your story, but have you ever been in the office where they're making fun of Christians? My, that's my wife's story. When she worked in architecture, she walked in, and they're like, there's the pastor's wife. And you kind of just want to hide in the corner. Right? Have you ever felt the peer pressure to do something that you know that you shouldn't do, but you wanted to be liked so bad that you, you did it anyway, and you kind of hid the fact that you knew Jesus? Can I tell you something? That's not at all what Paul's saying here. I set all that up because I want to show you. You don't have to be fearful of that. That's not what Paul's saying. I don't think he's up in heaven being like, well, Billy messed that one up. He's out. Hey, he got it right then. He's in. You know how I know that? Peter. Peter, the greatest archetypal idiot in the Bible. <laughs> and I love him. Peter denies Jesus three times, and he forgives him all three times, and then he has him build his church. Context is key. This is so important. Jesus is talking about the ultimate denial. He's talking about salvific denial. He's talking about if you walk away from me and you deny the faith that I've given you, well, then I'm going to deny you. And this makes total sense. Listen, if there's any other way to heaven other than Jesus, then his death was unnecessary. You, you realize, okay, those coexist bumper stickers, they're the most offensive thing in the world to Jesus. Because basically what they tell Jesus is, you died for nothing. Right? It tells Jesus, hey, there's other ways to heaven. I don't know why you died. And here's the, here's the crux of it all. If there's any other way to heaven other than Jesus, then the worst possible thing you can do with your life is tell anybody about Jesus. 
because you've drastically decreased their odds of going to heaven. But the reality is, is Jesus is the only way. God himself in the flesh died for you, which means that we can't deny him. So, you know, when we redefine morality from what the Bible says, we're actually denying the goodness of God. I, I, I know that we all think that we're pretty enlightened in this world, but, but can you imagine? You're like, God, I know you died for me. I know you created everything, but you just don't know how my marriage is. You've never had to live with her. <laughs> or God, I know you say that I shouldn't have sex before I'm married. You're so archaic, God. Culture's changed. I got to test drive it before I buy it. Y'all, it's a big deal. And it's not necessarily what Paul's talking about here, but it always leads to that. Because as we redefine culture to be our functional God, what we start doing is denying the goodness of his lordship. So here's the warning. If you walk away from Jesus, he will walk away from you. Like You have to remember this. If you've gone all in with Jesus, though, according to the verse right before that, it's not possible to walk away from him. So here's the question that I want to have for you today. Have you gone all in with Jesus? Not does he have a portion of your life, but is he your Lord and Savior? Now, after all that, here's the promise. If you're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the most Amazing promise. Watch this. God's faithfulness is not dependent on you. Write this down. Our great hope isn't dependent on our good works. Do you know why you can do this? Because God's faithfulness to his promises. You see, the character of God is so incredible that you can let go because he won't let go of you. It reminds me of one of my favorite stories in the Bible. If you've been around Christianity at all, you've heard this story before. It's the story of Peter walking on water, right? Jesus is walking on water. He calls him out of the boat to him. Here's how I always heard the story. I always heard the story that Peter began to sink because he took his eyes off of Jesus and he put him on his circumstances. There, There may be some truth to that, but that's not the point of the story. That's not the point of the story. Here's the point of the story. When Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, Jesus never took his eyes off of him. And when he looked back up at Jesus, Jesus put his hand down and grabbed him. Because God is faithful, even when you're faithless. See, that's the point. And I think that it's important for you and I, because listen, you are going to sink. All of us are going to take our eyes off of Jesus. It's going to happen. How do I know that? Because it's literally happened a thousand times over. But every single time you sink, every single time you take your eyes and put them down, if you will just look back up, God's still looking down at you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not walking away from you. He's not in disgust because God is faithful. Do you know what helped Timothy stay the course when things got hard? The faithfulness of God. God not waiting on him to clean up his mess to change his circumstances. Do you know that God already knows everything about you? He knows your deepest, darkest secrets. He knows the stuff that you've hidden from everybody that you don't want them to know about, and he still chooses you. He still chooses you. Did you know that? Do you know how freeing that is? You see, it's that power. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead, the same power that keeps Jesus faithful to his promises, that will actually free you from the identity of the bondage, the bondage of the identities that you create for yourself. So let me bring this full circle. 
You don't need your memories anymore. You don't need to remember your past or your identities that tend to shape you because Jesus came into history and because he's faithful, he will rewrite your story in the present. It's the most powerful message that Paul could have told Timothy. And it's the one that we all need to hear. It's the powerful message that if you'll let it sink in, can actually change your past and transform your shame and give you a new power in the present. Let me just be honest with you. I'm always honest with you anyway. I'm ashamed of my past. Can I just tell you that? Like, I'm ashamed of the fact that I hurt people. That when I was in college, I had total disregard for Jesus. I, I really am. I've told my wife that. I'm ashamed of the person I used to be. You know what, though? God rewrote my story. And I need you to hear me say this, because this is so true. When Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see my past. He doesn't see my shame. What he sees is Christ's righteousness in my place. God's not ashamed of me, which means that I can let go of my past too. Blank slate, start over, God's faithfulness in your life because of Jesus. Here's what I think. And again, I've been doing this for three and a half years here, and I've probably never done this before. Maybe once, I don't know. I think some of you need to let go of your past. I think that's the reason why you're not going all in with Jesus. Maybe you're watching online, and that's you. Like there's a bondage that you're holding on to. I think you need to hear the gospel. That when Jesus died in your place, he wiped away all your sins. The, the imagery is that you were like scarlet that he made as white as snow. That you will stand before the throne room of God and God will look at you, Luke, and he will say, that one's mine. I died for that one. And I wouldn't be a just God if I hold him accountable for what I already died for. So what I see, Luke, what I see is I see Christ's righteousness. And I see perfect, beautiful Luke come into my feet. And you get to experience that now. If you'll just receive it. See, the way that I want you to receive this today, maybe it's you go all in with Jesus. Maybe, again, as you go all in with Jesus, you need to be baptized. I'm going to be right there. I want to talk to you. I know it's a scary thing, especially in a small room. Like I get our nine o'clock gathering is a small one and it can kind of feel like you're singled out. I get that. But this isn't for me or you. It's between you and God. I, I don't, you don't have to raise your hand or do anything. Like I'm not going to do that. You need to go on with Jesus. I mean, come talk to me. Because he's faithful even when you are faithless for he cannot deny himself. Therefore, you don't need to deny him. He can save your eternity. I think that's what Timothy needed, and I think that's what we need too.